I don't care if God ever shows me that this is for my good. I get to believe it. It's part of me. It's down in my toes. It's what the Bible says. Don't take that away from me. If, if God takes all, it takes everything, leave me the scriptures and don't let me ever doubt them. Larry, his teachings meant the world to me. Best man I ever met. He showed me the person that I need to be, but through his teachings, I figured out the man that I really want to be. I sure want to be Christ-like, just like Larry. Welcome to the Timeless Gospel Podcast. I'm your host, Faith Ann, and Larry Horton was my dad. The deepest connection I had with my dad was through his teaching of the gospel. My dad communicated grace more deeply and simply than most. These sermons came to be preserved through my dear Aunt Shirley, who, in the early 80s, requested that my dad's sermons be recorded on cassette tapes and mailed to her so that she could be edified from five states away. When Larry died and went home to be with the Lord in 2019, my Aunt Shirley came to the funeral and brought with her the very sermons this podcast was created to showcase. The remaining sermons were preached in the early 2000s at the church he pastored until he died. His children's prayer is that you will come to Christ through these sermons, or if you already are a Christian, be edified and comforted as so many were during his life. In this episode, as promised, we go back to 1987, where Larry finishes teaching in Romans 2. I've decided to add a brief piano interlude beginning in this episode and moving forward after the sermon. So I want to break up the sermon and the discussion a little bit with a tiny transition. So when you hear the piano music, the episode is not finished. It just means that the sermon is over and the discussion is getting ready to start. In this episode, it's just me talking a little bit about the testament of Larry and Linda and a few childhood stories. A rendition of Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, played by Mandolin on the piano, completes the episode. If you have questions about the podcast, you can email me at thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. That's thetimelessgospel at gmail.com. Most of the hour, uh, on the last part of this passage in Romans 2, from verses, let's say, about 23 through 29, and deal with a couple of things there that are more doctrinally uh, especially the last thing I want to to show, rather than than showing in, in our outline the uh, the judgment of God, we will look at the judgment of God on religious people. But then I want to bring in a couple of other things. Now next week we start getting into some into the mind of Paul, uh, showing the complicated mind that he has. Uh, he raises uh, very very difficult questions. And then he goes about to answer these questions, and it becomes very. We become start getting to have a lot of fun in Romans, showing that this uh, this brilliant man's arguments concerning what he's trying to bring out. For instance, uh, this passage today is talking about the Jews and how it is absolutely of no benefit whatsoever to be a Jew, to be circumcised, to trust in the law, or to to have the law. And then immediately in in verse one of chapter three says, "Then what advantage has the Jew?" Or what is the benefit of circumcision? If we just go by what we're going to study today, you would think that uh, maybe there's none. But Paul says, verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he goes on with that argument. But that, uh, that'll be next week. Let's start reading in verse 17 down through 29. Keep it in mind now, this is a seventh uh, different type of person uh, showing how God is going to judge man. And the fact that, that a person is religious in our terminology today, the fact that you go to church, the fact that you pray to God, the fact that you read your Bible, the fact that you give, uh, the, 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 the idea of trying to love one another and, be, and becoming reformed. Uh, your life is, you're trying to reform your life and, and live in a religious atmosphere. Even this will not save you from the judgment of God. That's what Paul is, is showing here at the end of these uh, different ways in which he's going to judge mankind. So let's keep that in mind as we read. I'm going to read, read the passage, and then I'm going to go up and paraphrase verse 17 down through again. And then we'll probably get away from that to some degree. Literally, it says this, verse 17. After all the, mora- the, the moralists have been dealt with, the ungodly have been dealt with, the heathen have been dealt with, uh, those who judge have been dealt with, uh, those who... Uh, who uh, deny the existence of God through creation and have not submitted to God, uh, those who have suppressed the truth of God after all that's been dealt with. Now we come to the religious person. Uh, in our day, the Catholic. 
the Methodists, the, 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 the Presbyterian, whatever you want to call them, those whose lives are pretty much uh, activated and motivated by the church or by their religion, their, their, their society of religious people, whether they be Jew, Catholic, uh, or Baptist. But if you trust the name Jew and rely upon the, on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you, are, that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, though you're breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is, he quotes the Old Testament, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are transgressors of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are transgressors of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Boy, that's plain. That is so plain to me. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. For he is not... Uh, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not of the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. If I stood two men up here, and one of them was John Johnson, and the other one was Abe Goldstein, and I ask you, which one was the Jew? Uh, in most congregations, I feel that most would say that Abe Goldstein was the Jew. We're going to see in the latter part of this uh, of this hour, if we have time, hopefully I'm going to show very clearly, not just to you, but to those who uh, listen on tape, that Abe Goldstein more than likely is not a Jew. And John Johnson could very well be a Jew. But before we do that, let's read it again. And I'm going to change the words uh, just to put it in context. Naturally, the, 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 the Bible means what it says, but I'm going to change the words around a little bit. But if you bear the name Christian or church member, but if you bear the name church member and rely upon the Bible and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the Bible, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should, be, should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Bible, though breaking of the, of the commandments of the Bible, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the ungodly because of you church members, just as it is written. Simply saying is, is Paul is showing that you cannot trust in anything except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. You cannot trust in your decisions. You cannot trust in your church membership. You cannot trust in your goodness. Now, I'm a teacher of the Word of God, and I teach others. Does that save me? Well, it may. It, it, just might, it just might save me. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And the answer is yes. When I teach others, I teach myself. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? I preach that you should not steal. I preach that the Bible pre teaches you should not steal. Have I stolen? Yes. No hope. There's no hope in my teaching there's no hope in my preaching. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. You who say that one should not commit adultery, and that's what I say, you should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? 
And the answer is yes, I have. In, in my mind, in my heart, as Christ brought out in the Gospels. Uh, then I'm, I'm in big trouble. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I, I'm always, uh, uh, we in the church, we, 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 we don't want to trust in idols. We don't want to rob the temples. And yet, the church today, a great deal of the time is spent between the time the, the choir sings and the time the preacher comes to preach is a, is a time when the preacher or someone comes up and asks for money. Now, in a, a, a very self-sufficient church, that lasts about 30 seconds to a, to a minute. This is a time that the preacher sets aside to, to talk to the people out pre about presenting their tithes and their offerings. But if a church is going bad, the, the, that time gets longer and longer and longer. And one of the, th one of the ways we talk in the uh, industry of church is we ask other preachers, well, what's your attendance and how are you up and all this? And then we ask, well, how much time do you spend on the offering? And that tells us if the church is in solid financial shape or if not. I just it, out, of, out of the 30 minutes that the pastor has, 30 to 40, 45 minutes the pastor has, how much time does he spend on money? That's robbing. That you're, you're robbing the time. You're robbing a lot of things to, to get the people motivated to give more money. The largest church in Moore, so I've been told, I have not been there. The largest church in Moore spends 15 minutes on money before the pastor comes and, and preaches. And then we know on TV how all that thing is going. And I'll guarantee you folks, if you want to build this church, I know exactly how we can do it. Get a lot of folks in here. Now go out and buy a piece of property. It's a solid method. It's been done for the last hundred years, and I'll guarantee it'll work. Go out and buy a piece of property and start building a church on it, a church building. And tell everybody in town we're building this new new church. We need your help. We need your money and all these things. And it'll 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 grow. Now, it, much the same thing was happening during the time that the Bible was written. These Jews, uh, these these uh, Pharisees, these teachers of the Bible, they would they would rob the people and develop powerful wealth through the teaching of the Bible. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? So so we have here. The point Paul's trying to make is that there is no salvation in your church work, your church membership. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. And if you're not in Christ, I don't care how religious you are, you're lost and the judgment of God is upon you because the very things you believe in, you disobey. The very things that you believe in, you disobey. Whatever you believe is going to save you, you're going to violate that very thing except faith in the shed blood of Christ. Okay, so that's kind of what that says there. Verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The law we're talking about here is not the necessarily the, uh, the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial law. And we know that the ceremonial law was a, a type, a picture, a teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were those who would practice the law, but, but not from the heart. And, and, and uh, giving you just a little bit of history here, let me get a quick drink. God called Abraham alone. Okay? And he made a covenant with Abraham. We're going to look at that just in briefly, briefly in just a moment. But he made this covenant with Abraham. And God did, was going to do, promised all these things. He's going to do all these things. But Abraham entered into that covenant with God in the fact that he was circumcised. Now, all the peoples down through the ages who were Abraham's physical offsprings, whom you consider to be Jews, were, had to be physically circumcised. That was the mark put on them to show that they were a people of God, that they were the God's chosen people. But the circumcision did not save them. The circumcision did not do anything but, but show the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Now, what Paul is saying here to these Jews, you've been circumcised. You're trusting in that circumcision, and you're wrong. It's not whether you've been circumcised or not. It's what kind of person are you? It's from the inside. <clears throat> Verse 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if, if, if you practice the law. If indeed it's from the heart. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It means nothing. 
If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now here's my point. We in the church today liken baptism with circumcision. And you've all heard these, these uh, teachings. The problem that we have with baptism is that it's such a close picture of circumcision that we have in the church the same misunderstandings of baptism as the Jews did of circumcision. There are those in the church who teach that, that baptism saves you, that you cannot be saved unless you're baptized. That's exactly what the Jews thought. You cannot be a child of God unless you're circumcised. And they had good reason to believe that. God was going to kill Moses. Mo Mo God came to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt now, and I want you to deliver my people from Egypt. Moses said, okay. Off he went. And on the road, God showed him, because Moses had been married to this Gentile lady, that, uh, that his two boys were not circumcised. And, and, and God said, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. And I think God's a God of his word. He would have killed Moses right then, had he not had his boys circumcised. That's just one proof text, if you will, of the importance of circumcision. Okay, so that not only do we feel in the church a lot of, some, some people in the church feel that baptism saves you, but even if they don't go that far, they, they think there's some kind of mystical power in, in water baptism. That once you become a believer, you're still not quite the person you ought to be. You know, there's something missing in your life until you make that commitment to be baptized. Now, that's a real good picture of being circumcised and, and being a Jew in, 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 the, in that economy. But because of those two misunderstandings, believe me, people, baptism doesn't, doesn't produce one extra thing in your Christian life. We are perfect in Christ. Christ is our sanctification. And if you want to be baptized, I would be honored to baptize you as long as you understand what it means. But I promise you on the authority of the Word of God that if you are baptized, you are not going to receive any kind of special mystical power to, it, to enable you to live the Christian life more fully. It's simply a, a sign of the covenant. I've got another illustration that, that if, you'll, if you'll bear with me, I believe shows a lot clearer what circumcision is. And it's this right here. That's a, that's a ring. That's a gold wedding ring. And what this gold wedding ring signifies is that I have entered into a covenant with my wife, with a, with a lady. Okay? And, and this is for everybody to see. This is a physical outward appearance of my commitment I have made to her. Now, this is to show every woman in the universe, in the world, that I am off limits that I do not want to enter into any kind of intimate relationship with her. I am a, this shows that I'm an honorable man and I have, I have promised one individual my love, my, my intimate love. This shows every man in the world that I am a, a person of honor, that I am a person of character because I wear this ring. It shows the men that I, that I am honorable enough to, to, to live with one lady whom I love. Give her my honor and my love. But now if I'm a carouser and I'm an adulterer and I'm a womanizer, this ring means absolutely nothing, does it? Do you follow that? It means absolutely nothing. I can wear this ring from now on and it, and it doesn't mean a thing because it's my character that this signifies. It's my character. In the same way, there was a time a few years ago when Linda lost the, 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 the stone out of her ring, out of her wedding ring. Well, it looked kind of funny wearing it. She wore it for a long time, kind of funny, you know, wearing it around with this stone out of it. And we really couldn't afford to buy her another stone at that time, so finally she took it off because it looked kind of ridiculous. And you, she spent a long time... Uh, not wearing a wedding ring. Well, did this change her character? Did this change her, her commitment toward me? Did this change her covenant with me to be faithful to me? Of course not. 
That's what circumcision is all about. You see this, you see, I promise, I truthfully promise, promise, I plight my troth. That's what it means. I truthfully promise to honor you. And this is signified by my wedding ring. But if I'm an adulterer and a womanizer, the wedding ring means nothing. Let's read it now with that in mind. <clears throat> For indeed, circumcision is of value. My wedding ring is of great value to me. It shows the world that I have entered into a covenant with my wife. And, and her wedding ring means a great deal to me also, showing the world, women and men, that she's entered into a covenant with me to, to, to promise me to be loyal and faithful, to love me, to honor me. Okay, for indeed circumcision is a value, and that's the value of circumcision. It shows that you have entered into a covenant with God. If you practice the law, here don't, it's talking about if, 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 if you take the whole thing. But if you are a transgressor of the law, if you're a womanizer, the wedding ring means nothing. If you're, if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So it's just, if I'm a womanizer, it's just like not having a wedding ring. And in the very same way, the next verse shows what I just showed about Linda. And will not he who physically is uncircumcised, physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Uh, I'm sorry, verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's what I just said about Linda's wedding ring. When she took it off, it didn't mean a thing. It was, it was just like she, if she had it on. As far as our relationship was concerned, as far as her own character, as far as her uh, who she is, the wedding ring did not, by taking it off, did not f cause her to go out and be an adulteress. So the, her not having a wedding ring became, in my eyes, the same as having a wedding ring. That's what God is saying. We're going to see this further as we develop this. Circumcision means absolutely nothing as far as salvation is concerned, in the Old Testament or the New. Man cannot be saved by nationality. Man is saved by the grace of God. And that is the only way that men can be saved. Now, going on to verse 28, we'll spend the rest of the time here. I don't think we have enough time. Now, here is a plain statement of fact. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, That's so plain. Let me, let me, before I get into this, let me say here, I'm not grinding any axes. I thank God. I thank God for the men that he's brought into my life to teach me his word. And these men have, have, God has used these men as a means to put into my heart and to put into my mind one thing that I will never back off from. And that is the one thing that I'll go to hell believing. And that is that we are not under law, but we're under grace. Now, I will, I, I tell you as dogmatically as I know how, I will never back away from that. Never. I believe that just as much as I believe that we're saved by the blood of Christ. And the way in which God showed me this were, were through the means of these men of God whom I, whom I respect whom I thank God for. Men like Darby, men like Schofield, and, and Lewis Berry Schaefer of Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm very thankful to God for Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm very thankful for, for pastors like Ray Stedman who write books that have taught me, and, and very thankful for an individual named Bill Lawrence, who is now a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, who's taught me great things in the book of Romans. I'm, I'm even thankful for the old man, Jay Vernon, Jay Vernon McGee. He's taught me many things on his radio station. I'm thankful for these men. These men, I believe, are believers. I do not judge them as unbelievers, and I thank God for them. But this whole business of this dispensational, futuristic sensationalism is, is, is not, it, it, it's great for, to be sensational, you know, but it's just not the truth of God. Here, very plainly, Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. I just don't see how we can be any more plain than that. 
And yet these same men that, I, that I've been talking about and, and multitudes of others have come along and said, the Jews are Jews, the church is a church, and never the two shall meet. And a Jew was saved by his circumcision. A Jew was saved by being a Jew. Jesus Christ came along, put an end to the law, therefore we're saved by faith in Christ. That's all nonsense. In the Old Testament, now if you get this, you'll have it straight. I'm not talking to just you, but those here on tape. If you can get this one thing straight, the Bible will, is going to open up to you. This whole area of, of Jews and Gentiles in the church. And I'm going to try to show it to you right now. You cannot deny that there's a physical Israel in the Old Testament. You just cannot deny that. But the promises made in the Old Testament to Israel were made to spiritual Israel, not to the fleshly Israel. If, you could, if we could get that straight, we wouldn't have any more trouble with this, this problem. When God promised something to Israel, He was promised it to the spiritual Israel. He was promised it to the people who lived according to the wedding ring they wore. Not just to the ones who wore the wedding ring. So the promises in the Old Testament were to spiritual Israel, to those whom the chosen people of God. Proving, starting to prove this right now. For He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Jeremiah said, Lord, circumcise my ear. What did he mean by that? He meant, cut, get it to where I can hear. Let me hear, Lord. Let me hear. Paul talks about circumcision of the heart. We believers have been circumcised. Not outwardly, not physically, but from the heart. But he is a Jew. If you want to know who a Jew is, who is, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praises is not from men, but from God. Let me, let me say this just as clear as I can. Standing before you right now is a Jew. His name is Larry Horton. And I'm just as Jewish as you can get. You can't get more Jewish than I am. And I've been circumcised. I've been circumcised from the heart by the Holy Spirit, by the sword of the word, and I, and, and, and I am Abraham's offspring. I am a Jew. When you talk about the promised land, you're talking about my land. You're not talking about that nationality over that's, that's in it now, that we call Israel. Now, let's see if that's true or not. Let's turn now, let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12. That can't be right. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. Okay, we have, we have uh, creation, we have Adam and Eve, we have the fall. Uh, then we have a peoples. We have Cain and Abel, uh, or Cain and, and uh, the sons of Abel, and uh, we just have a, a bunch of folks. And then we have, uh, we have uh, these folks uh, rebelling against God and the tower. And then we have a whole new deal. And we have the flood and wiping out everybody. And then and on comes down. And then finally God calls Abraham alone. There was not any godly men at that time, in God, including Abraham. And God goes to, to Abraham and says, okay, you're mine. Now, God makes a covenant with Abraham. In verse 7 of chapter 17. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an what? For an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. What does everlasting mean? Does it mean it, I'm going to establish my covenant with you until I send my son physically to earth and die for the peoples? Everlasting means everlasting. God has entered into an everlasting covenant with Abraham and that covenant is going to last Everlasting. It's going to last forever. Don't put a stop to the covenant at the cross. If you do, you're violating the one word in Scripture. You're also going to violate the whole chapter of Galatians chapter 3. We'll see that in a minute. Okay? Everlasting means everlasting. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, one thing that all our dispensational friends fail to mention. In this verse right here, God gives the land to Abraham. Now we know from Hebrews 
that Abraham never, Abraham never had possession of the land. But it talks about his faith, that even though he didn't have it, he believed he'd have it. But God, now, now what's, what's right here? Is the scriptures not inspired? Is, is the scriptures wrong? God gave to Abraham and to his descendants the land. Abraham never possessed it. Now, our dispensational friends say that the people are now, Abraham's descendants are now possessing it and will continue to possess it. Well, what happened to Abraham? God promised it to him. And God's going to, and, and Abraham's going to walk that land and rule over it. Okay, verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Linda and I got married and as a sign of the fact that Linda and I got married, I put on a wedding ring. It's a sign of the covenant. Mm. Now watch. Verse 12, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house, a servant, a servant who is, this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from anywhere, foreigner, who is not of your descendants. Okay, he says that every male shall be circumcised that's eight days old, and also every servant who's bought from a foreigner. Who's that? It's Gentiles. Verse 13, A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in the, your flesh of an everlasting covenant. There's that word again. Now watch what, verse 14. But an uncircumcised male. This is, not, this is not a foreigner. This is not a servant. This is just a male. This is a, a Jew. This is a, a physical descendant of Abraham. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So right here at the very beginning of the covenant, God shows that it's not physical Israel that's going to have the blessings, but it's a spiritual Israel. The foreigner can come in and by process of circumcision uh, become spiritual Israel. And the very physical Israel is cast out because he's not circumcised. Let's go over to 15 now. Chapter 15. Verse 6, Then it pleased, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. And he said, O Lord, uh, okay, uh, that, that's another part of the covenant. Now going to chapter 12. Verse 3, <clears throat> And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is it that physical Israel can be a blessing to all the families on earth? It cannot. It's through Abraham and his descendants. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 6, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. I have faith. I am a son of Abraham. Abe Goldstein may not have faith. Therefore, he's not a son of Abraham. He may have the wedding ring on. He may be circumcised, but he may be a womanizer. Therefore, circumcision means nothing to Abe Goldstein. Johnny Johnson is not a physical descendant of Abraham, but he believes. Therefore, he becomes a descendant of Abraham, and therefore he is circumcised. Therefore, he has a wedding ring on, even though he doesn't have, just like Linda. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All, here's, here's what we just read, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer, for as many as are of the works of the law, that's the physical Israel, are under a curse. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. There's no way Israel, physical Israel, can be saved by obedience to the law because they're going to break it. Now, that one, now, 
that no one is justified by law before God shall be evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Now let's turn over to 28 and 29 of the same chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Can you be any more clear than that? I just don't see... Yes, I realize that it destroys your systematic theology about future things. I know it does. And it takes an awful lot of sensationalism out of the future comings, the, the war, the Gog and the Magog and the Russia and, and the hair on the horse's uh, tail and, uh, and, and all these things. I realize you got to, it fouls all that up. But, but let the word speak. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's tremendous teaching in, in, in Matthew and I believe in Luke. Uh, show, I believe that's where it is showing the lineage of Christ. And in that lineage, it shows two, two ladies. Out of four, it shows two. Ruth and Ahab, uh, Rahab. Ruth and Rahab were not physical descendants of, of Israel. They were Gentiles. Your parents come from Ruth and, and Rahab. And then they, the, the theologians say, well, no, no, you don't go that way. You go down through the man. Well, you can't possibly go through the man because Christ did not have a human father. And I, I, I refuse to even enter, entertain that thought. If we're going to look at the lineage of Christ, we're going to look through the women. And there's two women in Scripture that, are, that, is, that, was the, that is the Lord Jesus Christ's grandmothers who weren't even physical Jews. But they were believing Jews. They were believers. They were believers. Turn to Romans. Let's go to Romans. Uh, let's go to. Uh, let's go to Romans nine. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter two, and he's going to really develop it in Romans nine, ten, and eleven. He's going to show us exactly what's going on. But right now, let's look at verse six. <clears throat> but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Abraham had a lot of sons and daughters. It wasn't just two. There were lots of them. But Isaac was the, his only begotten son. Isaac, Isaac was the only son by, produced by supernatural means. Isaac was a child of the promise. Abraham had a bunch of kids, but Paul is showing the argument, just because there, there's a bunch of kids of Abraham, that doesn't mean a thing. Israel are the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of the promise. And then we'll go on and, and see later in, in, in earlier, but but later than today in Romans, that, that if, if, if blessing is based on something other than the promise of God, then you can't have the blessing because we're, you, you'll, never be, you'll never be sure of it. If, if the blessing from God is on something that I do, then I can't be sure of the blessing because I may not do it right. But the only way I can be blessed is if I'm blessed according to the promise. Girls, only according to the promise. Therefore, Paul is showing that illustration, the fact that Abraham had a bunch of sons and daughters. But only through Isaac will your descendants be named. The blessings come. So there's a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel in the Old Testament. Physical Israel means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The Bible is written to spiritual Israel in the Old Testament. When I say absolutely nothing, I, 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 do, I do realize it's a picture and a type of our spiritual life, and we should look at it that way in the Old Testament. I don't want to get too critical right here. My point is that because you were a child of Abraham, according to the flesh, did not guarantee you one single thing as far as salvation is concerned, as far as a walk with God is concerned. That's why Paul brings up in, in chapter 3, verse 1, well, then what advantage has the Jew? He says, great in every respect. We're starting to put this thing in context. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by 
it having put it put to death the in, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those, or came and to preach and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. He preached to, to the Gentiles who were far off, and he preached to the nation Israel who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there is, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, man or woman, we're just all in Christ. And the blessings of the Old Testament, the blessing of Abraham, which was an everlasting covenant, I take part of that. I take part in that now. You want to go to the promised land? Go to my promised land. I am a son of Abraham. And you are a son of Abraham, if you believe. Uh, Let's turn to Luke 20 and we'll quit. Here we're talking about the physical nation of Israel. Let's look at verse uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 19 to begin with. The people he was talking to, the people that we're going to read this parable about, says, And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Physical Israel. What was the parable? Here it is. And it came about on verse 1, and it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And he, and he answered and said to them, I shall also ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? <laughs> but if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And they answered and they said that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the, the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers. That's the physical nation Israel. And went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the, vine, to the vine growers in order that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Let's call that slave Isaiah. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him, and also they treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. That's Jeremiah. <clears throat> and he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they, want, they wounded and cast out say Moses. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him <clears throat> that the in inheritance may be ours. And that's exactly what they did. And they threw him out of the vi vineyard and killed him. That therefore, will th what therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What in the world is God going to do to the nation Israel, the physical nation Israel, for what they did to his only begotten son? Don't put any significance to that ungodly people. I'm not anti-Semitic. I am Semitic anti, actually. The Lord Jesus Christ was a, uh, what we call a Jew. He died for me. I am a spiritual Jew. I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm not, I'm not anti-Jew. I'm anti-untruth in Scripture. And that's an ungodly nation over there. Just as America is an ungodly nation. And just as Africa is an ungodly nation. I put absolutely no significance on the name of Jew. Or on Israel. As far as physical. They killed the Son of God. And they threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers. And he has done that. And will give the vineyard to others. That's me. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be. 
But he looked at them and said, What thing is this that is written? And then he quotes the Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. That's me. Broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So we need to fall on Jesus Christ and be broken and thereby be saved. If not, he's going to fall on us. But there's no significance at all toward physical Israel. There's no significance at all toward physical circumcision. There's no significance at all toward the literal obedience of the law of God. It's all inward. It's an inward thing. I am a spiritual Jew. I am the seed of Abraham. And when the New Testament speaks to the seed of Abraham, it's talking about me. It's talking about you. Okay. And lastly, I've got a second. I said that I couldn't be sensational with, the, with our friends. And I can't. I don't know about Gog and Magog and the, the tribulation and the Armageddon and the blood and the horse's hooves and all, or horse's mouths and all that. But I can be sensational. Because I believe that the next tick, as they say on God's timetable, is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ back in clouds and in power and in glory. Larry's sermon from chapter 2 talks about, the end of chapter 2 talks about the moral man, how that's not going to get you into heaven, the religious man, it's not going to get you into heaven. So glad I grew up learning about who I was. I knew that no matter how good I was, it would not make a difference. I knew that the only thing that was saving me was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was such a blessing. Um, a couple of things that are happening as I'm putting these podcasts out. Well, for one, things that Larry's talking about uh, bring memories back to my mind of my childhood. It's such a blessing. I love it. And then I'm learning new things as he's mentioning circumstances in sermons. I'm learning about them. And it's very nice to listen to these sermons as an adult because in 1987, I was in the ninth grade. I was a kid, and now I'm listening as an adult, and uh, the truths are still there. They're still wonderful, and I've, I've known them. It's just very nice to be able to apply them in my life as an adult. I just can't even believe how wonderful it is that we have all this, these sermons. And then I want to, want, to bring up, want to bring up Linda. He talked about her wedding ring. Linda was ever bit as much as the the evangelical, the spreader of good news as Larry was. Linda had a softer, quieter way of doing it. She wasn't teaching from the pulpit, but her ministry, her ministry screamed graciousness. Her ministry screamed, I'm not better than you, but for the grace of God, I'd be living under a bridge. She played the piano in all of the churches that we attended, but she really, uh, understood grace and uh, was not the kind of pastor's wife that you had to tiptoe around and you had and she wasn't making sure that we were all towing the line because she didn't want to look bad in front of church people. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that if you were a pastor's kid and both of your parents are so super concerned about how you are making them look, I would imagine that the true meaning of the gospel would not mean much to you. Um, it would just scream of hypocrisy, and I'm thankful that that was not at all what happened with mom and dad, Larry and Linda. Larry mentioned the wedding ring, and this is not theological at all. It just It's just a, something I remember. Um, I remember Linda's, my mom's hands, in a couple of different ways. I remember um, she had wonderful, soft hands, and she would look at my fingers and she would say, Faith Ann, you have the fingers of a piano player, and I don't. But she played the piano 10 million times better than I ever did or do. But she was admiring my fingers, that they were longer than hers. Um, but I loved her fingers and I loved her hands. And one of my earliest memories of my mom is playing with her fingers in church. So I would sit next to her and I would play with her left hand that had the ring on it. 
and I would just play with the ring. I would play with her fingers. I would play with her wrist. I would just play with her hand, and she didn't just let me do that. And I'm talking about as a very young girl in church because we were always expected to be in church with our parents. And most of the time, Larry was preaching, so it, mom didn't have a, a lot of help. But one thing that kept, kept me occupied was my mother's soft, wonderful hands and her wonderful patience with me and her patience with all of us. Quiet, patient, um, believer, believer of the truth and, and acting it out. She would uh, comfort me when I was sick, and I remember her hands were the thing that would comfort me the most because she would put her hand on my forehead, and she would just sit with me and keep her hand close to me. Not a lot of theology here at the end. Uh, Larry's theology comes through so, so clear and like a freight train that sometimes it's even hard to add to what he said. And so this time I decided to talk about Larry and Linda, what they mean to me. And I'll finish by saying if Larry and Linda's testament was 20,000 miles long, the fact that they were good and nice and sweet would be a sixteenth of an inch, and the remaining 19,999 miles and 15 sixteenths would be that they were believers. They believed the promises of God, and they believed that they were part of Abraham's covenant, the covenant in which we do nothing and God does everything, and that is what their testament is. They were a picture of sinners saved by grace. Thank you for listening to the Timeless Gospel Podcast.